Welcome to another PI World podcast. This is an audio-only version offered as another way to enjoy our great content. A full video version can be seen on piworld.co.uk, where you can find many more videos of interest to investors. We'll canter through the presentation. I shall do first half highlights, Karen will do the financials, and then I'll do the strategy and outlook. The at-a-glance slide shows that the group has continued to develop on a number of fronts as we execute our long-term strategy. We hit two billion of revenues in the first half of the first time. We had a very solid profit performance down on last year, which was an extraordinary period. And the analysts have upgraded their full year numbers based on statement that we expect the full year to be ahead of market expectations. We've got 160 sales outlets with significant scope for future growth through with a strong acquisition pipeline and more multi-franchising opportunities. We have a tangible net asset per share of 71.2 pence and robust customer experience and colleague satisfaction scores, as you can see on the bottom right. In summary, we think we've got a scaled, well-invested, technologically powerful business that is uh, enabling us to undertake further consolidation of the sector. In terms of uh, highlights, the group, I believe, has executed well in the period. We've seen further growth through portfolio management, uh, developing our new Toyota market area in the west of Scotland, which commenced in April. Uh, we've got a first dealership running in April, second dealership next week, and we've got another one to build out. We've further developed our brand investment, particularly Bristol Street Motors, which is now one of the highest ranking automotive brands. And we delivered market share growth in every segment, new retail, fleet and vans. Digitalization continues both in sales and after sales. The click to drive tech platform gets better and better with particular focus this period on reservation fees. Our data usage, particularly in the used car arena is coming through. We've got a new head of data appointed. And after sales digitalization, which we flagged last time is now in full force with the rollout of self-service check-in for after sales customers coming in for a service. In terms of financials, we're now the fourth largest UK group by revenues, and we've done that in less than 15 years in business. We've increased the dividend. We have, again, executed a buyback program during the period and approved a further three million of a new buyback program. And we spent a lot of time in the past few months thinking about energy, developing a strategy, which Karen will go through in more detail. On the people side, we've substantially reduced the vacancies that we had in the business. We've got more engagement through workplace engagement forums, including interaction with our non-executives. We took on record number of apprentices and expanded our training development in what is a fast-changing sector. Looking at financial KPIs, there are four critical ones here, and you can clearly see the pandemic looming large over this five-year period. You can see the two billion of revenues coming through that PBT has gone down from last year's extraordinary levels as anticipated. But this is the second highest ever H1. We are converting profits into cash with a free cash flow of 23 million and minimal contribution from working capital in those numbers. You can see the tangible net assets of 244 million, up from 173 million in FY19, reflecting the cash generative nature of the business. So I'll now pass to Karen to look at financial results. Thank you, Robert. Uh, so the income statement set out here shows the adjusted PBT in the period. And as Robert has pointed out, this is well down on last year, which saw unprecedented market dynamics, especially in used cars, but still represents the second highest profit performance in the group's history. 
We grew revenues despite vehicle volume declines, and that is a result of actually increasing prices of cars. Those price increases have had a dampening effect on gross margin percentages, whilst Robert will cover shortly what's been going on in terms of gross profit per unit, where these remained above historic norms but have come off the high points of last year. Operating expenses, as anticipated, have increased, and I'll come on to that in more detail in, in a slide shortly. So moving on to the next slide, you can see the profits bridge, which bridges the profit before tax compared to last year. It's pleasing that we saw gross profit generation increase in the new and fleet and commercial channels, and also in all of the core after sales operations of the group, we saw increases in gross profit. The key standout is obviously the decline in used vehicle gross profit, but it's worth noting that this still represents a record for the group if you ignore the extraordinary period last year. Next slide, I'll explain more fully in terms of operating expense increases. You can see the impact of the loss of government support in respect of business rates. And in respect of acquisitions and business startups, the small loss seen in the period is really down to the startup businesses, namely Stockton Motor Nation and Glasgow Toyota, where losses were incurred as expected as these businesses start to build a customer database. So turning to cost, this cost slide summarizes the cost base of the group. And it's fair to say that we have faced inflationary headwinds in the period and core group operating expenses increased by 15.3 million compared to the first half of last year. The biggest number within here is salary costs. And in order to improve colleague retention and aid recruitment at a time when the group was experiencing very high vacancy levels, we undertook a group-wide pay and benefit review, which we flagged in last year's interim results announcement. We flagged that it was going to cost about £12 million on an annualised basis, but I think it's fair to say as time has rolled on in certain of the group's geographies and in certain roles, we've had to go deeper again in order to make sure we've got the right level of colleagues in the business. Overall, pay awards represent £4.8 million of the increase in salary costs. But it's worth remembering that that does not include increases paid to technicians because their cost goes through cost of sales in the after sales department, not through operating expenses. The salary increases also include some structural changes we're making to the sales teams where we're moving certain of our uh, roles into sales advisors. Sales advisors compared to a traditional sales exec see higher basic, but earn a lower commission. And that's what's helped drive some of the savings in terms of commissions and bonuses that you see in the table on the right. We also invested in additional headcount, including the record number of apprentices that Robert referred to earlier. And we also invested in central functions. If you look at vehicle and valeting and other costs, it's fair to say that some of this represents a normalization of activity post lockdowns where we can see increases in training and travel, as well as investment in the group's IT infrastructure, including cybersecurity. You might be surprised to see energy costs on this chart are level. And in part of that is probably because a lot of the work we've done in terms of driving cost out of the energy cost line. The group's fixed its gas prices out till October 2024, but the biggest element of the group's energy cost is electricity. We've had a lot of focus on the minimization of cost. We monitor this always, but obviously more so given the turmoil that's been going on in the energy market and the price rises we were facing. And we've relaunched our war on waste initiative, and that helped us deliver a 5.3% reduction in the number of kilowatt hours that we use 
due to improved disciplines as a result of this initiative. Now that reduction in usage has not come through in the cost overall because certain of the group's dealerships don't, didn't have the benefit of the fixed contract. So those that were acquired post entering into that contract actually were on rates that did vary and that offset the energy saving. So we now use approximately 23 million kilowatt hours of electricity per annum. And in the face of what's going on in the energy market, we've looked at our purchasing strategy and developed some medium term targets to source 40% of the group's energy requirement from off-grid generation via a power purchase agreement direct from a supplier, such as a wind or solar farm. And in addition, we're looking at a £3 million investment in solar panels to produce a further 10% of the group's energy requirements. And that is to be in place by the second half of next financial year. So turning on to how that all translated into cash, operating profit was converted into free cash flow. Working capital overall saw very little movement with increased inventory and debtor balances due to timing and sales activity offset by related receivable balance increases. Uh, we paid £4.8 million of taxes and £3 million of interest in the period. And you can see how we used that cash in order to deliver on our capital allocation disciplines in terms of acquisition growth and also in returns to shareholders. More granularity on our capital allocation discipline is given on this side. And we prioritise acquisitions and growth and reinvestment in operations. And you can see there some of the detail in terms of the acquisitions that we've made, together with more detail in terms of the capital expenditure incurred to date and expected. And the expected capital expenditure of £27 million includes the expansion with Toyota in Scotland and it also our investment in solar and electric that I've just gone through. In terms of return to shareholders, we've increased our dividend. And whilst we've recently completed our existing share buyback program, spending nearly £6 million since the 1st of March on the purchase of nearly 3% of shares, we've announced a further £3 million purchase today. Share buybacks have actually long been part of our capital allocation discipline. And actually, since the last equity raise back in April 2016, we've bought back over 48 million shares, which represented 12% of that opening share capital at that point. So my last slide before I hand back to Robert summarizes the group's balance sheet. It's a strong balance sheet underpinned by its significant freehold and long leasehold property portfolio in a net cash position at the end of the period. And this gives the group confidence in our statement about significant firepower being available to achieve our strategic objective of growth. You can see the movements in working capital are apparent with increases across all inventory debtors and creditors, which are related. Improved availability of new cars in certain of the group's franchises saw an increase in new vehicle inventory levels, as you can see on the table on the right, compared to the end of February. And actually, demonstrator requirements relaxed during lockdowns came back in full, and we were able to secure the supply to get back to a normal and required level of demonstrators. As anticipated, actually, we saw used vehicle prices move to impact and reduce our used car stock overall in terms of value. However, we actually have more units in stock at August than we did in February, helped by our strategy to ensure a good supply of vehicles for sale. The pension scheme remains fully funded, even after the turmoil of recent days, but it's fair to say we've probably been actively managing our investment portfolio more closely due to LDI investments and need to make sure that they're collateralised. 
I'll hand back to Robert now to go back through strategy. Okay, here's a picture of our new used car operation in Stockton, branded Bristol Street Motor Nation, which has got off to a good start. The strategy of the group has not changed in the last 12 months. We had a full strategy day in September and concluded there was no fundamental changes required. We just needed to continue to execute. So this slide remains as is. And I think we've made progress in all areas, including the three sustainability goals at the bottom, which we see very much as being at the heart of the business and nothing exceptional. This is just what good business practice is. And we're making good strides in terms of increasing sales of electric vehicles for our manufacturers, uh, reducing our environmental impact, be that landfill or uh, energy usage, and then doing work with our colleagues in their communities to actually promote the, uh, the, the local communities and to promote our brand within it. We turn next to UK market trends. This is quite a busy slide, but crucial. UK new car supply has never been out of the news in the last 12 months. We're now faced with continued supply weakness in new cars, a 1.6 million market. If you go back 10 years, people were predicting a 3 million market. This, however, should not be seen overly negative because actually we have seen substantial margins as the demand pull model gives us better margin than the old supply push with pre-registration and margin disruption. The lack of new cars over the last few years has directly impacted the vehicle park and particularly used vehicle supply in the zero to three year age bracket and also to some extent after sales, as we'll see. And certainly there is some contribution to used volume declines due to supply, but not all. Look at values of used cars. The stability of values is quite marked. The blue line represents the monthly change in values of used cars, and it is incredibly stable compared to pre-pandemic normality when used car values tend to decline. The yellow line shows the incredible acrobatics of used car values last year when we saw substantial increases in values. In fact, used car values today still stand 11% higher than this point last year. The stability, though, is clearly marked. On electrification, electrification continues to increase as a percentage of sales, 14% market share in the period as supply and production is moved to meet emissions targets on the manufacturers. I think we'll all pay a lot more attention to electric vehicle numbers, but clearly the crucial one is for us is the vehicle park because the vehicle park drives after sales. And we have seen a drop in the vehicle park during the post-pandemic period due to lack of supply, particularly the zero to three market. And that has and is going to have an impact on used vehicle supply and prices. And I think will help underpin prices in used vehicles for about three or four years. The vehicle park is now expected to grow between 2022 and 2032. But let's just look at the percentage that battery electric vehicles will make up of that vehicle park in 2032, 35%. So we are looking at a glacial change in the vehicle park. If we look at our performance in sales, you can see the group like for like numbers were back in every area compared to H1 last year. That is pretty well new car supply related. We beat the SMMT numbers in every channel apart from new retail, where Ford, which are a big part of our portfolio, particularly underperformed with lack of supply of Ford and Fiesta. Though notable, the SMMT numbers came out today and Ford saw the highest growth. So these things are volatile at the moment rather than marked long-term trends. On market share, I think if you look at the bottom left, 
You can see we grew our market share against our full year numbers for last year in private retail by a touch, significantly in fleet cars, where we have uh, started a new business unit dedicated to public sector supply, which is certainly increasing our share of the market. But then the real standout number for me is actually in vans. Uh, we hit 6% of the new van market, up from 5 uh, and we believe we are the UK market leader in vans. If you look at margin per units, top right, you can see that we're off the highs of H2 2022, but still at historically very high levels of margins in all channels. In terms of gross margin percentages, I think the thing we need to discuss is used gross margin percentage, which actually fell to 7.9%. The gross profit per unit is off a touch, but the selling prices have materially changed, and that is diluting margins on a percentage basis. So in FY20 first half, our average used car was selling for 14,500. It's now selling for broadly 20,000. And while there's some franchise mix in there, that understates the effect of the price hikes, really, because we're also selling a lot more older cars. So used cars remain very much on the high side in terms of values. Then to after sales, it's clearly a key profit driver. We've split out our petrol forecourt in witness for specific treatment uh, because it was starting to impact some of the trends when we looked at the segments. And you can see we increased revenue by 93% and actually increased literage by 80% we took the decision to undercut the high petrol prices that were set by the local supermarkets. If we look at service in particular, you can see like-for-like -like growth in revenue and in gross profit. Margins fell, as expected, because we're paying higher rates of pay to technicians. But pleasingly, we have recruited a lot more technicians, which is therefore driving the growth that we're seeing and was, was clearly necessary. Bottom left, you can see the revenue mix and you can see warranty sales, which is work done and built to manufacturers within the warranty period is down 8.1%. This is a direct reflection of the declining zero to three-year park. The most pleasing number on here, I believe, is the fact that we've grown our retail revenues in service, 3.4%, which actually, if you think that people tend in their mind to think we service predominantly the zero to three-year warranty park, it's just not true. Our average invoice value has increased substantially by 6% because our processes of identifying work and selling it are strong. We've got 169,000 live service plans, and that tends to bring us older vehicles as well because we prioritise sales of used car service plans. Our digital conquest strategy, which we outlined this time last year, is 32% higher in terms of bookings, and that's bringing older cars in that we never sold and we've never seen before. The final element within that retail line is this includes revenues for service and repair and MOT that we build leasing companies. And we are taking a big increased share of that market. We have a very close relationship on the fleet side and on the after sales side. And actually, in the month of September, our revenues to lease goes was up a significant 27%. If you look at digitalization, there's a lot going on in this space. We clearly have 50 software developers and robotics engineers in-house, but we're also using some external resources as well to increase the pace. Our used vehicle analytics called Virtual Analytics has been profiled previously. And it's setting pricing strategies to maximize profit per day. One of our issues, I think, in the last six months is we've been selling highly desirable cars too cheaply. And there's a margin opportunity of actually getting those pricing strategies right. We've got the data in development and out there now. So we've got complete transparency for customers, whether online or offline, in terms of the part exchange value. I use this system and you'll see a red dot in the middle. 
you can click on that, see the car and find out why we're not maximizing profitability on the back of that. In terms of online sales, we're not a big fan of online retailing. We find it low volume. However, we're a big fan of £99 reservation fees on used cars. The customers can do that online or in our concierge personal shopping service or in a dealership. And it's much more important than pure online. We took 1,500 reservation fees in the month of August with a 60% conversion. I've just mentioned the concierge service. These are personal shoppers based here in the Northeast. And they guide customers who are online who are struggling a bit to either complete their journey online or to provide them with information to complete their journey another way. We think we've doubled online conversion by adopting that 12 months ago. Finally, we undertook an acquisition of wiperblades.co.uk, which bizarrely sells wiper blades. It's been integrated into our Ace Parts business as excellent organic strength and has given us the ability to buy cheaper wiper blades. The next focus is the colleague focus, because everything that's actually delivered by our business, be it software development or customer experiences, is underpinned by the people within the business. And we've got to make sure we have the right people with the right numbers of people with talent, energy and drive. We've made some decent progress here. Our vacancy levels have dropped from 500 to 400, 6% now of the total colleague plant headcount. And I think that's getting more normalized. That's certainly going to help us deliver gross profit. We're getting good feedback from employee colleague forums, including our non-executives attending those. And really one of the key areas of concern is work-life balance, which is still a major topic. And we are now piloting four-day working weeks to try and provide greater balance and to help retain and recruit. We've clearly got an undertaking in the year, a pay review across the piece, which we flagged about this time last year, actually. We've clearly got to be cognizant of the impact of the national minimum wage, which is impacting a significant number of colleagues and an increasing number of colleagues as it goes up. Our great place to work score of 86.6% is very strong and we're very happy with that. Clearly, we're in a sector that's undergoing massive change, technological electrification. So we've got new roles, new skills and need to change roles. We've increased our investment in training and development, record numbers of apprentices appointed into the after sales departments, a lot of investment in EV specialisms. We actually took over 200 apprentices on in the past six months. We've expanded our management development programs because we fully anticipate that we will be growing the business and we'd much prefer to use our in-house talent and to make sure that the new managers are appropriately trained and developed in advance of management roles. So we're making good progress on that. And everybody in the group has access to online personal development programs. And we're really trying to foster a culture of success and opportunity. Return to current trading and outlook. I think everyone will agree September was a odd month. We had the death of the Queen. We had worries about energy heights. We had the budget that wasn't the budget and continued new car supply dislocation. We're delighted, therefore, to come out of that month with the third highest ever profit in September. And that clearly underpins H2 and our statement that we expect full year PBT to be higher than market expectations. It was a month of volume shortfalls and volatility in new car markets. We were waiting to the last day for some of the cars to arrive. However, margins remain very strong. Our order banks remain very strong, particularly on new retail cars. Used car demand, as it says here, we felt was subdued in the month, but margins remain strong and pricing resilient. Service benefited from the fact we have more technicians, but we did lose a day of production due to the closing of business during the funeral, but things are going well in service. 
So where do we go from here? One of the common questions is when will new supply come back? And the honest idea is I don't know. And I don't think there's a person alive on the globe who actually knows when new car production will, will get to normalised levels. I think we should just expect it to gradually over time normalise. That should, therefore, that continued constraint in new vehicle supply underpin used vehicle prices and the shortage of used vehicles currently. And that's going to last for quite a number of years. We've got to be cognizant of demand. And is this subdued nature of used cars in September on the demand side going to continue? And we'll have to see. On the cost side, the government action on energy for the next six months for business is very helpful. The national insurance reduction is very helpful from November. But we're clearly cognizant that the cost of living issues could very well put pressure on pay. That will be exacerbated if there's a high national minimum wage settlement from next April. Clearly, we'll have to review these items and do our business planning and update the market in due course. Finally, we've got a strong pipeline for growth, both through multi-franchising opportunities, which we continue to work on, but also we've got a good pipeline of acquisition opportunities. We're also talking to a number of new franchises, which we currently don't have, which I would be fairly confident we'll be able to bring some new franchises into the business. In the period, actually, we did bring LEVC, which is the Geely-owned London Electric Vehicle Taxi Company, uh, into the portfolio in our taxi centre business. Overall, we are, I think, in a very good place. We are clearly well capitalised and asset-backed. We've got significant firepower to expand our operations and scale, and we would very much hope to utilise it. Our digitalization is delivering benefits to customers and also productivity, and we're going to have to be far more productive in the years ahead and take cost out where we can in order to maintain the right level of returns. We are building a culture of success and confidence, and the people focus is critical if we're going to be successful. So we are excited uh, by where we find ourselves. The pace of change is significant, but there is a high level of opportunity. Thanks very much, Robert. Um, so we've got lots of questions. How is your retail market share up despite like for like versus SMMT being down? Good question. Mm -hmm. And the answer is because the market share is compared to the full financial year last year, uh, whereas the like for likes are versus H1. In addition, the market shares reflect the growth of the group in terms of non-like for like growth, i.e., new entities that we bought over the last couple of years. And are you exposed to an inflation risk with your service plans? And if so, what level of inflation have you budgeted for? That is another good question. And the answer is, if you fix your, fix your service plan cost in advance for three years, you have definitely got a inflation risk insofar as costs may go up and service plan revenue won't. So I think that's fairly self-evident. Clearly, what we are doing is looking at the cost of the service plans we're now putting on. Uh, and we obviously have to be wary of price elasticity. And so far as there's no point us putting our costs up um, when in reality, we might therefore lose penetration. And you've got to bear in mind, if somebody comes in for a service plan, and let's assume it's $14.99 a month. Yes, that's elements fixed and you've got an inflation risk. But when you actually then identify further work or tires or whatever it is, you can build your inflationary increases into the quote that you therefore give the customer. So we want to do the work, not lose the work. So it's not it's not all downside. The upsell can effectively be inflation proof. 
And are you seeing any impacts from higher interest rates and potentially lower credit availability on affordability and purchasing decisions? And what impact would you expect from, for example, a further 2% rise in base rates? Uh, well, if Karen deals with that from a financing of our business standpoint, mm -hmm. and then I'll talk about sort of the demand aspect. Yeah, so financing of our business, remember, we're swapped out at 50% of our underlying um, loans at the moment. So we're protected in some ways from interest rate interest rate rises, but clearly on the unhedged element, we aren't protected. So we will see our interest rates go up. Uh, manufacturers, you'll not be surprised to hear also increase interest rates on stocking, albeit clearly there is low levels of new vehicle inventory at the moment on which we can pay interest, given we're largely delivering what is pre-ordered at the moment. Yeah. And in terms of impact of interest rates, um, it's a complex area. Uh, we have had finance companies raising the interest rates on finance. We have pretty well passed those on to customers to date. Uh, I'll give you an example. The BMW APR on used cars is now 11.9%. Citroen produced some new new car offers uh, this week. New cars at 9.9%, which is, you know, high. Um, there's an impact on our business insofar as we've come to the conclusion that 0% finance, which is our killer used car offer we use periodically at events, is not sustainable because of the subsidies we have to pay. So clearly I'm going to move on that. Yeah. Um, I think there are a number of things. Uh, we have seen no evidence whatsoever of reduced credit acceptances to date. My statement would be it's early days. Um, in terms of future interest rates, we'll just have to take those uh, as we see them and we'll have to make a judgment about whether we pass those further on to the customer or whether we actually reduce our income from finance commission volume bearers. And that's something we'll have to consider as and when those those rates come in. Um, my overall view in terms of affordability, let's take new cars. Uh, the interest rate element of the new car PCP is never in my mind the biggest element. The headline price and the residual value are the two biggest determining factors. And we watch with interest where exchange rates with the euro will land. Mm -hmm. Are we going to see further price hikes? We've definitely had price hikes in new cars. And I think that does point to affordability issues for customers. And new car order take has definitely slackened. Uh, on used vehicles, I think interest rates are quite important. But what you tend to find in used vehicles in recessionary environments is that you get a switch of new demand into used demand. So used demand tends to be quite resilient. Uh, but clearly, if more and more of real wages end up in mortgages, for example, that leaves less disposable income. And you've got to think that used car demand might slacken. Did that happen in September? Very, very difficult, really, to say, because there was just so much going on. I think people were scared witless about energy and clearly were upset by the death of the Queen. So I think we have to see how it goes for the next few months. I remember selling cars on 15 15.9% find in previous high interest rate environment. So you do sell cars in high interest rate environment. And in your cost breakdown on slide nine, can you confirm that the PP and E depreciation falls under other? Do you expect IT spend to continue growing ahead of inflation? 
We have done a lot of investment in IT, actually. Um, and it depends, actually, because we do use suppliers who will be facing the same inflation, inflationary pressures that we are. So we'll be looking potentially at further price increases for those suppliers to our IT functions. Um, I think there has been a step change in terms of investment, in terms of our cybersecurity and in the people to support that, which I would hope not to see again in as much. But as I say, uh, suppliers are facing inflationary headwinds just as we are. And what we've got to do is we've got to use our IT capability and our software capability to take cost out. So yes. the prioritization of work is around making us more money, yeah. be that increasing revenue, increasing conversion or reducing cost. Thank you. And I understand the term agency model. Can you cover a wide variety of arrangements? If possible, please could you discuss the Mercedes-Benz model and whether you expect it to be typical going forward? I think you can get awfully et up about this agency model thing. I think we need to stick to basics. There are a couple of different legal formats, which I don't suppose we should really get into here because I don't really think it makes much of a difference between genuine and non-genuine agency. Uh, Mercedes-Benz is, as it happens, genuine agency. The fundamental points are that we receive income on selling a new vehicle. The vast bulk of new vehicles will be sold in dealerships because, frankly, online retailing of anything in our sector is, is weak. So dealerships remain paramount. Uh, we will have less cost in terms of stocking, finance charge. We'll have no stock. We'll have no storage. We won't be doing marketing. That will be the responsibility of the manufacturer and we'll get a handling fee. So our turnover in new cars will be zero and uh, we will get basically, a, well, actually the, the turnover will be the handling fee. Uh, so we'll have 100% gross margin, which will augment group margins. So fundamentally, the key difference is you will have an invoice from the manufacturer rather than for us. And I think I'll end it there because I think that's really what it, what it does. I don't see that it gives us any more margin exposure than we currently have today. Apart from the fact it's quite much more a resilient model. I don't have to discount. Yeah. I don't have to do pre-registrations. I don't have to eat into my volume bonus to fund tactical activity. It's a much more sustainable model. Now, the proof is in the eating here, and we're talking conceptual rather than reality. Um, but this is not an issue I'm currently losing a lot of sleep over. And traditional manufacturers selling through dealerships seem happy to take higher margins on lower volumes, whereas new direct entrants like Tesla are more aggressively working around supply chain issues and focusing on volume. How much loss of addressable market do you expect to see before the traditional manufacturers start fighting back? And do you expect to see any reversal of current trends? Well, I mean, Tesla's been quite a success far more than I thought. But if you actually try and get your car serviced or repaired in Norway, for example, you're waiting six months with Tesla. So I think they've got quite a few challenges. I don't actually see the question as the reality of the situation. Um, I think the manufacturers, be it agency or traditional, um, have got the same issue is are their cars the right product and are they price competitive? And whether it's agency or traditional doesn't really make any difference. Um, and I mean, personally, I find Tesla cars look the most boring cars on the planet. 
Um, the manufacturers are actually worried about Tesla, uh, but I think they've got an absolute plethora of products with which to attack Tesla on that is a lot more exciting and I suspect a lot more reliable. Um, Tesla have got massive supply chain issues. You have a crash in a Tesla, you'll not see that car for six months. And could you talk a little more about your apprenticeship program? How many do you aim to recruit per year? And are they distributed throughout the business or concentrated in EV and technicians? Yeah, no, no. I will talk about this at length. Right. So we have a multitude of apprentice programs. We've always had light vehicle technician apprentices. That's very traditional in our industry. They work in each of the dealerships, come in 16, 17 Traditionally, a three-year apprenticeship, you become a fully trained manufacturer-approved technician after three years, and that's schemes with the manufacturers. And we continue to take on one or two apprentices per outlet per year. I think that is vital. Um, And all that training is now heavily focused on electrification, as you would envisage. At the centre, I engage said, we take on quite a significant number of apprentices in finance, in marketing, particularly digital marketing, and throughout the building. We find it a fantastic way of bringing uh, talented young people in. And I spend some days um, in local schools. I did a school with 100 kids last week, you know, about the careers, about the opportunities in the sector. We also do a lot of degree apprenticeships um, in various roles. Uh, some of which are operational and spread out through the country. The big step change we made this year is from March the 1st, we took 120 customer services apprentices on, which we've never done before. So these were over and above our headcount in the service departments, provide extra resource in the service departments, provide better customer experience, and to bring talented people in to train them over 12 to 18 months to be fully fledged in the area of service reception service advisors and we've got some absolute talent that's come through that way and I don't think we'll do the same next year because I think we've now got a pipeline that we need to sort of work out where they go um, and what we're going to do with them though I think they will naturally be absorbed into the service advisor ranks Um, but we'll certainly be taking on well over 150 uh, other apprentices in the next uh, next 12 months. Would it not be simpler and scale building to call all businesses Virtu? Absolutely not. No, that would be nonsensical as it happens for a number of reasons. One, there is a difference in perception and market and indeed core marketing strategy between premium businesses like BMW, Audi, Mercedes-Benz, Jaguar Land Rover and the likes of Citroen, Peugeot, Vauxhall, Ford. And you want to be able to do very different things. Bristol Street Motors means something different to Virtue Motors. Uh, and actually, in Scotland, we've got Matley. And I think, personally, Bristol Street Motors sounds far too English to go and put across Scottish dealerships. So I think we've got three core brands. I am happy that that is the right strategy from a brand perspective. We gain benefits. So all the Virtue stock is actually on the Bristol Street Motors website. And that powers actually about 40% of inquiries, uh, internet inquiries into Virtue dealerships actually come from Bristol Street Motors. So I think having a bifurcated strategy is the right strategy and there will be many downsides of having one brand i think it would stymie us great thank you very much and that's the end of questions robert do you have any closing remarks 
No, I'd just like to thank our private thank investors you. for their support. Um, I think you're an important element. That's why we do these specific uh, talks. So thank you very much for your questions. They were excellent. Yeah, and they were. Uh, we look forward to seeing you next time.